Well, good morning and welcome to Brain Bible Church. It's an eventful Sunday for me. This marks my 10-year anniversary here at this church. It's almost 10 years ago. I didn't have a pause for applause in my notes. But it was 10 years ago, October 2nd, 2011, when I entered this pulpit for the first time as pastor of this church. And it was never part of my plan to be the preaching pastor so young. I was only 28 at the time, so you can do the math. I'm 38 now. But, you know, God's been good and gracious, and you've come a long way, but at the same time, it still feels like the work of equipping this local body and reaching this community is, is still just kind of getting started. And so I sincerely hope you all can continue serving here with me for another 10 years to, to do this work, which is never finished until the Lord returns. But may we all just press on and be found faithful. And while it was not my plan to become the, the preaching pastor so young, one thing I did plan is that back when I was in seminary, I also told myself that whenever I preached my first official sermon as, as a preaching pastor, it would be on the gospel, just the gospel alone, a whole sermon on the gospel. And that is what a pastor is, after all. He's a messenger of the good news of Jesus Christ. He's a herald, whether standing in a field or in a pulpit, declaring, announcing what God has done through his son, Christ Jesus. And so that's what I did uh, 10 years ago. My first sermon was just a whole sermon on the gospel. And somewhere along the line, I thought to myself, yeah, maybe I'll do that again at the 10-year mark. Maybe I'll preach that message again. Not to suggest that you should only preach the gospel once every 10 years, I think some churches I'd be asking a lot. We, we want to have gospel-rich, gospel-centered messages all the time, but it's helpful to have special, focused, clear messages expounding the essential truths of the Christian faith from time to time, and that most certainly includes the gospel. And so here we are, I thought for my tenure mark, I'd just do that again. It's not a carbon copy of the first message by any stretch, although it wouldn't really matter. Most of you weren't here 10 years ago, and even if you were, you're not going to remember the message anyway. But I want us to spend our time beholding yet again that the timeless and unchanging message of the gospel. This is always worthwhile because God put his power in this message to transform lives. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And just think about that. God put his power to change lives and thereby to change the world in a message. God's power is found in his word. And as it's preached, as it's shared, as it's declared, God sends forth his spirit as he sees fit to raise the dead to life, to grant the forgiveness of sins, to reconcile sinners to himself. Think about how many countless lives have been transformed just by a message preached. How do you explain the origin and rise of Christianity? We no doubt Christianity later became somewhat corrupted as the Catholic Church came to power in Rome and, and intertwined faith and politics. But go back to the earliest origins of the faith. I mean, obviously it starts with Jesus, who was basically a peasant, son of a carpenter from a small backwoods town of Nazareth. He was a nobody, and he later died on a cross, just like thousands of other criminals who were executed by the Roman Empire. This Jesus wrote nothing down. He left no written legacy, but his voice carried on through his disciples. There's a small handful of similarly unimpressive, uneducated men. They believed Jesus was not a nobody. They knew and believed he was the Son of God, the divine Messiah, who spoke truth, worked wonders, and most of all, rose from the dead. And it was by the Lord's design that his church would actually begin through their testimony. So you have these ordinary men empowered by God's spirit. And what do they do? They just start preaching. They spread the good news of Jesus, the Savior who's coming to the world, and the gates to his kingdom are now spread wide open so that Jew, Gentile, Male, female, rich, poor, slave, free. doesn't matter. Salvation is open to all by faith in this Savior. It's the message of the gospel. And it's true. Countless people re rejected these first evangelists, even persecuting them. I mean, all of the original disciples of Jesus received brutal treatment and eventually harsh deaths for his name's sake, as did thousands of others. But some people believed and then some more, and, and then some more. And more than just believing, you're having lives completely transformed. 
just radically renewed. And that's all just by a message preached. And in a little while, this, this message had reached all the corners of the Roman Empire. Changing people for the better, making them true worshipers. And the spread of this faith even upset the world or, order. And we're talking about complete national societal upheaval. Such that it was said of Christ's disciples in Acts 17 verse 6 that they've turned the world upside down. They've turned the world upside down. You probably know for the first 300 years after Christ that the Roman Empire viciously tried to stamp out these Christians. This little religious new sect. And they used the sword to kill thousands. But in the end, the empire itself was conquered. How did that happen? How did the greatest empire of the ancient world get conquered? And it wasn't by the sword, not by might nor by strength. It was by faith through the power of a message, a gospel preached. And that's it. This is in total contrast to all other world religions, by the way. You take Islam, for example, and the religion of Muhammad as he began in Mecca and Medina. It did not spread through a compelling message. From its earliest origins, Islam spread through the sword, through conquest, through coercion. But it's not so through the faith. God didn't place his power in the sword to really change the world. He put his power in his word, in this gospel message. And this message has changed world history forever. Now, hopefully this at least piques your interest. You know, what's so special about this message? What is this gospel What's it all about? How can, how can you transform lives and even turn nations upside down without firing a single shot just by announcing a message? How, how does that work? Well, I want to tell you this morning and, and share with you the essence of this gospel message. I know many, if not most of you, have heard this message before thousands of times. This is not your cue to check out, though, any more than someone who's eaten a thousand meals can never eat again. The gospel is not only God's power for salvation, but sanctification as well. And this message of, of Christ is meant to fuel us daily. So we all need to tune in. And especially if you found your heart growing a, a little bit cold to the things of the Lord, it's your time to draw near to the fire of the gospel again. But that's enough by way of introduction. We're going to spend the rest of our time traversing through this gospel message And since the gospel itself doesn't really change, we can use a familiar outline. So let me walk you through the the four categories of the gospel message. The four categories of the gospel message. No surprise, it's God, man, Christ, faith. We're going to walk through these again. And let's begin with, first, God. The message of the gospel starts with God. This is the one true God, the God who made all things, the God who in the beginning said, let there be light. The God who formed you and and fashioned you in his image. The God before whom you will one day stand and give an account. But before we get to that, I want to tell you a little bit about this God. The knowledge of God is kind of like space itself. You can look up, you can see the stars, you can catch a glimpse of the vastness and the glory of space. And you can see it, but at the same time, no, you'll, you'll never see the whole thing. You'll never explore the whole thing. And likewise, the knowledge of God We can never plumb the depths of it. But he has revealed much about himself in the scriptures. And when it comes to the essence of this gospel message, at least two attributes are worth highlighting. And so let's do that. The first is love. That God is loving. God is loving. And there's no shortage of scriptures to affirm the fact that this God is a loving God. He's characterized by love. He's, in fact, defined by love. 1 John 4.8, the one who does not... Love does not know God, for God is love. And you can turn your Bibles to Exodus 34 if you want to follow along. Exodus 34. So many wrongly think that the God of the Old Testament is some different God. He's this unloving brute. But that is not the case. I want to show you one key passage in the Old Testament where, where God himself testifies of his true nature. And this is where God causes his glory to pass by Moses, and as he does so, he makes a stunning self-declaration. This is who God is according to God. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says, The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, 
the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. You can stop there for a moment. Not only is God compassionate, it says, and gracious, but also he's abounding in chesed, love, steadfast love, loyal love. This is talking about loving kindness. And it says God abounds in it. He overflows with this love and he pours it out on his people just abundantly. Now we could, of course, elaborate on God's love forever, as we sang this morning. But I want to mention a second key attribute of God. We have a lot of ground to cover. And the thing is, most people already believe essentially God is loving. They want to believe God is loving. The problem is many believe God is only loving as if this one attribute washes out all the others. But that's not the case. God is loving, but he is also just. We can bring in a second attribute, justice. God is just. Again, everyone wants to believe God is loving and so much so that he loves you so much, he'll just overlook all the bad things you do. It's like a father who's so engrossed by his child that he just turns a blind eye to his bad behavior. God does love us like a perfect heavenly father, but that means he wants what's best for us and it's never best for us to overlook our sin. And furthermore, God loves justice and his own glory far too much to turn a blind eye toward sin. God is perfectly just and it's part of his perfection to uphold justice and to deal with evil rightly. God himself would be evil if he let the wicked go unpunished in the end. In fact, God's justice, which is married to his holiness, is is so much a part of his character that he announced it in his self-declaration. So you keep reading verse 7 if you're still in Exodus 34. Right after talking about his love, it says in the middle, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Right after God declared himself to be loving and and forgiving, at the same time, you can sense the tension. He's also just and will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In other words, God must punish evil. He must judge sin. It's it's not really a a choice. He has to. His own holiness and perfect justice demands it. He himself would be unjust as the creator and judge to to not deal with sin in the end and all forms of evil. It's getting a little scary to think that I entered college 20 years ago. But pretend I'm a college student again and I need $10,000 for tuition And I'm smart enough to say, forget student loans, so I decide to rob a bank. (laughs) And I succeed in getting the money, but later I'm caught, I'm arrested. Eventually, I stand before the judge, and I plead my case to the judge. And I say, yes, Your Honor, I mean, technically, I did rob a bank, but it wasn't even a real gun. It was a toy gun, and no one got hurt. It's for a really good cause, like education. Who can't support education? And, And on the side, I'm a really good person. I mean, I volunteer at a soup kitchen, help my elderly neighbor take out her trash. I go out of my way to help people. Now, hearing all this, do you, you think the judge will find me innocent or guilty? I mean, obviously guilty, it's, it's not even a question. Why? Well, because the judge has a standard of justice to uphold. And it doesn't matter how good a person you are or you, you think you are. You, you've broken the law. You've violated the law. And you must account for that. You've got to pay the consequences, whatever those might be. It really is that simple. And God is the exact same way, except that he's perfectly just. A human judge might not be always perfectly just, but God is a perfectly just judge and righteous. And in the same way, like he himself says, he can't just let you go. He can't say, oh yeah, let's, let's not worry about this one. There's no letting anyone go. He'll by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And look, this, this is a good thing. You, you don't want a God who is unjust. You don't want a supreme being who, who leaves the guilty unpunished, who himself is unjust. And the only reason we actually have trouble with this is because deep down you know that, that you're the guilty ones and me. 
you know that if you actually had to stand before God right now, you, you have a long list of things to account for over the span of your life. And that's actually part of the bad news. There, there's some bad news that comes before the good news of the gospel, but it, it's something we have to talk about. And so we can bring in the, the second category of the gospel message, uh, man. Man. Let me just kind of summarize here what the Bible says about our human condition before God along, along four points. I'm going to say four, four subpoints. First, you know, man is a sinner. I hope you don't need a whole lot of convincing with this point unless you're living in, in extreme self-denial. You, you hopefully know you, you're a sinner before God. And this also is the unanimous testimony of Scripture. It's summed up perfectly in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are shut up under sin. The flip side of this coin is that in addition to the fact and really conjoined with the fact that all are sinners and none are righteous. No one is perfectly righteous before God. This is likewise summed up perfectly in Romans 3.10. It says there are none righteous, not even one. No, apart from Jesus, not a single person has ever lived a perfectly righteous life, meaning a life in perfect conformity to God's standard from cradle to grave. It's never happened. This is probably a good time to define sin. You know, what is it? The simple, the, the classic definition of sin is, is missing the mark. I trust you've heard that before. You, you can picture an arrow or an archer now pulling back his bow. He's aiming at the bullseye. He lets loose the arrow and it sails through the air and then it falls short of the bullseye. He, he misses the mark. He misses the target. That's kind of like a picture of sin. Our lives have missed the mark of God's righteousness, his standard. And we use the word sin to describe all the ways in which we miss the mark, which we miss the standard. This includes things you do from murder to adultery to theft. Now, like it's easy to justify yourself because you're not doing big, outward, egregious sins. But did you know this standard also applies to your speech? Things you say. Every lie is sin to God. Every gossip, every slander, every hurtful word. Now, I know you've never done any of those things. You've never lied, slandered, or, or torn someone down with your words. This applies to other people. <laughs> but from deed to word, we all miss the mark. And scripture even teaches that what comes out of us from word or deed, it's actually coming from the heart, from inside of us. And God's standard of righteousness doesn't leave out the heart. It goes all the way down into your inner person, the thoughts and the intentions, the attitude of your heart. That, that's fair game too. And when you include that standard for God's righteousness, it, our arrow is not even in the ballpark. And we're talking greed, covetousness, envy, impurity, lust, malice, anger. You've never done these things, right? No, to the contrary, we all know, I hope, we, we fall short every day. We, we, we're missing the mark. And this really gets at the heart of sin itself, which is rebellion. Now, all sin is rebellion against God. And sin is an exaltation of self. Like God created us to worship him, to enjoy him, to reflect his glory. We're made in his image. He gave us this, this boundary of righteousness to show us how. His law was made for human flourishing, for our good. But sin in its core is rebellion, stemming from pride and I will not have a God over me. I'm not going to have a Lord telling me what to do. I will decide for myself. And so you, me, we, we kick God off the throne. We take it for ourselves. And now you're, you're the Lord. You call the shots. And you go off looking for fulfillment outside of God's good boundary. You never find it because life away from God is vanity and futility. But this is the human condition. You have the whole race living in rebellion against its creator for, for the glory of self. And such rebellion is not without consequences, though. A uh, second point here, sin is a problem. Sin is a problem. First, you should know sin cannot satisfy. It can't fill your soul. God made you with a longing for satisfaction. But he's the only fountain of living water. But in, in this rebellion, you've forsaken him for, for bitter water. It's like drinking salt water. 
It can never satisfy you. It just makes you thirstier and harms you in the end. But this isn't even your biggest problem. The fact that sin is a problem, it can't satisfy your soul. But even worse, you've got a vertical problem, a problem with your creator. You know that the God whom you've rebelled against, he doesn't take lightly to that. You know, at our home, we have a reverse osmosis water under the sink, and it makes that the cleanest, clearest, the best tasting water there is. And so let's say I fill a cup for you, and right before I give it to you, I just add just one tiny little scoop of manure. Just t- tiniest scoop, like half a teaspoon of manure. Stir it up, give it to you. Would you drink it? No, you wouldn't. Why, why not? I mean, it's still 99% clean water by volume. Like, what's the big deal here? But, but no, you're not going to defile yourself by drinking manure water. You would reject the whole glass because it's defiled. You've got standards. It no longer, just, it just took a little bit. And the whole thing doesn't meet your standard anymore. You'll reject the whole thing. And God is the same way. He has standards based on his holiness. Problem is, we're the sinners. We are the ones that are repulsive in our sin. The way you recoil against the thought of manure is how God, that's, that's a small sample of how God recoils against sin. It is repulsive and detestable to him. We joke about it. We laugh at it. God doesn't ever. And now he must reject us because we don't meet his standards. We've fallen far short of his standards for acceptance. You might ask, like, is it just what is God's standard for acceptance? Let's simplify. It's just perfection. Right? Just perfection. Christ tells us, Matthew 5, 48, he says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's it. Just be as perfect as God. God does not want 99% holiness from you. He wants 100%. He demands perfect righteousness. You must be completely clean, undefiled by a single sin your entire life. That's it. I mean, you can see why we have such a problem here because this describes no one, right? That describes no one who's ever lived, obviously, apart from Christ. But no one is like this. And in reality, we, we don't even come close to this standard. I mean, even though it takes just one sin for God to reject us, we all have a lot more than, than one sin to answer for, right? I mean, just pretend, just pretend you only sin three times a day. By today's standard, you're like a saint. But you can round that off to about a thousand a year. So imagine every of your sin, every one of your sins was written in a book. You live till 70. That's 70,000 sins you need to account for. 70,000 transgressions against the law of God. And so what do you think would happen to someone who goes into any criminal court with 70,000 charges? Something bad. Right? They're, they're going to have to pay a big time, and, and so it is with us and God. We're not even in the same solar system as his standard. And it's not like we've just sinned a little. We're thoroughly defiled before him. And this bad news only proceeds from bad to worse. Because number three, the penalty for sin is hell. A third point here, the penalty for sin is hell. That not only are all people sinners and sin is a problem, but things get even worse and that scripture says that the consequences, the penalty is, is hell. Hell is a real place of eternal conscious torment and separation from God and his loving kindness. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. It's, It's talking about an eternal death because he contrasts it with eternal life. You're either going to get eternal life or eternal death and sin buys you a ticket to the latter. Christ himself will be set up as the judge on the last day. And he himself will condemn the guilty, saying to them, like in Matthew 25, 41, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This is bad. This, this is the penalty for sin. And again, although the world makes, makes light of sin and jokes about judgment, no one will be laughing on that day. That God is so holy and pure. He, he can't even tolerate the presence of sin before him. And he must eternally separate himself from those defiled by it. This, this sounds bad, but this is what scripture teaches. And I hope and trust what the guilt in your heart affirms. That sin is a problem. And then one last point here. What can you do about it? Nothing. 
Fourth, man can't save himself. A man can't save himself. You can't get, your out, get yourself out of this hole. I mean, first, you've got the problem of your guilt. How are you going to pay for all of your sins, your transgressions? Every single world religion proposes the same solution, which is just do good things, right? Do some good works, be a nice person, and, and just hope that in the end, you're, you're, the amount of your good outweighs your bad. Just do more good than bad and hope it all works out in the end. What system of justice is there like this, though? That, that's foreign to all, even of our human systems of justice. Think back to your, your record book of sins, 70,000 strong. I mean, for one, most people are under this grand delusion that they're a good person. But would you ever label someone with 70,000 charges a good person? And two, it doesn't matter how many supposed good deeds this criminal does. He, doesn't matter. He still has to account for his 70,000 crimes. I mean, all of his good deeds, they don't even enter that equation. They're, they're irrelevant. That, that's not what's at stake. Justice must be served. He must face the consequences for what he has done. What can you say? And similarly, how can you escape God's judgment? You're, you're guilty. I'm guilty. We can't be good enough to fix that problem on our own. So you have the problem of guilt. And second, you have the problem of your nature. It's not just that you're guilty. You also have a nature problem. All of your sinful words and deeds come from a sin-plagued heart. And what can you do about that? You know, man and his ingenuity, he can find a way to purify water, any water. He can, he can find a way to purify it, make the best out of unclean water. But, but man and his ingenuity will never find a way to purify the soul before God. You can't do it. What is the condition of your soul according to scripture? Ephesians 2 1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 3, by nature, children of wrath. And so your condition is one of death, spiritual death. And last time I checked, dead people can't do anything. They can't respond, they can't act, they can't save themselves. They're dead. And this is. How your spiritual condition is described in the word, you're, you're spiritually dead. And do you have any power to change your nature? Now, scripture teaches we are helpless. Uh, one picture I think of is just being lost at sea, abandoned at sea. You fall off the back of a cruise ship and are forgotten. And there you are floating. There's not a boat, a person, a, a life raft, a jacket, island, nothing around you for a thousand miles. And you're alive, but you're dead. Right? You're still breathing technically, but you're as good as dead. You have no hope. You're utterly helpless. You're, you will drown and die. And this is us before God right now. That This is our predicament because of sin. We spent a little extra time exploring the second point, man and sin really, because look, you can't grasp the solution until you really know and acknowledge the problem, which is not just a problem. It's, it's your problem. This is your problem. You think back to those two attributes of God we mentioned, the love and the justice of God. And look, God, on the one hand, he, he is a loving God. More than we know, he created us in his image. He does love us like a father loves his children. Never doubt that love. But on the other hand, because of our sin, our record book of sins, he must judge us. He, he does not have a choice in that regard. He has to judge sin. The, the debt has to be paid one way or another. We are the sinners. Our judgment is just. And what can we do about this? What, what's, what's the way out? Uh, there's nothing that we can do. All are condemned. And if we were just left to ourselves, none would be saved. Our only hope is that someone else would come along and, and act to save us. That they would do for us what we can't do for ourselves. But then we wonder, like, who's qualified? Because we're all lost at sea. If you're drowning, you can't help someone else not drown. Who is qualified and able to, to rescue us? There's only one. It's the one whom God sent for this purpose. And this is, of course, the third category of the gospel message, Christ. God, man, third, Christ and this was the main reason God sent his son Christ into the world. You all know the verse, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You know that, but the question really is, how exactly does Jesus save us from our sin problem, and and what makes him so special? Well, let's start here with first who he is. Who he is. Go to John 1 for this. John 1, 1. Speaking of the Christ, it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The short version is that Christ is is God in the flesh. God incarnate, 100% God, 100% man at the same time. God the Son comes down to earth, adds to himself a human nature that he might live as one of us, identify with us, humanity. He was born supernaturally through the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life. And just, just think about that. You and I, we sin all the time. We can't even conceive of what it's like to not sin. But Christ never once sinned. Not in deed or in thought, in word. Never once went outside of the bounds. Never once got anything but a bullseye. Every choice was a bullseye. He always conformed to God's righteousness. We miss the mark of God's righteousness by a mile, but Christ was dead center every time. And since by virtue of this, his perfect, sinless human life, he's qualified to rescue us. But by virtue of his, his perfect divine nature, he's, he's able to rescue us. And we can cover now, secondly, what he did. Who he is, secondly, what he did. And this brings us to the cross. Everyone, I think the world over, knows that Jesus died on the cross, but far fewer understand the significance, like what he was doing on the cross. The cross was a transaction. Thousands of people were crucified by the Romans. He's not the only person to die on a cross. Thousands were crucified. But there's only one perfect, sinless Son of God. And he purposely went to this cross as our substitute sacrifice. He went there in our place that he might bear the wrath of God for us. There's this, this cup of wrath it's being filled up more and more. Every time we sin, it's being filled up. It, it would take us eternity to drink this cup, to pay for our own sins. But on the cross, Jesus took it from our place and he drank it down to the dregs. He was able to do so. Isaiah 53, 6 says, For all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. and Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And it's speaking of this suffering servant. This is the transaction that occurred on the cross. He took, he took that record book of sins, all of them, and he, he paid the penalty for them all in our place. And again, being a perfect man, he was able to, to be this substitute for, for humans, for sinners. But being a divine man at the same time, he could be a sufficient substitute for, for all of us, for all who would come to him. And this really is the heart of the gospel. And you can see it's motivated by the love and justice of God. The love and the justice of God kissed on the cross and they reconciled in Christ. Because it was in love that God sent his son to die for us in the first place. But he did so to to meet the demands of his own justice. So that we could be redeemed. Listen here quickly to a pair of verses that, that expound this. Romans 5, 8 through 11. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Also, Colossians 2, 13 through 14. Colossians 2, 13 through 14, it says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And we can add here that that work Jesus did on the cross was final. He didn't leave any page of your record book unpaid. Like every, every debt has been paid. 
One of the last things Jesus said on the cross was to telestai, which is Aramaic for it is finished. And legend has it that this was a merchant term back in that time used to describe paying back a debt. So let's say I owed you $100 and I'm paying you in installments of 20, 20, 40, 60, 80. The last 20 I give to you, I might say to telestai, which which means it is finished, signifying that the debt has been paid back in full. There's, there's nothing left to pay. And, and no doubt, Jesus said that on the cross to signify his work was finished. The debt we owed for our sins, the debt we would have to pay in hell forever, he paid in full on the cross for us. Your whole record book of sins was wiped clean. And now that there's no debt left to be paid, there's there's nothing you must do to contribute to this equation by your good works. There's no purgatory where you have to sit until you earn enough merit somehow. Either you pay for your entire sin debt in eternity, or Christ pays for your entire sin debt through his work on the cross. This is the only way. Jesus is the only way to salvation. He's the only solution to this, this sin problem, our problem of separation from God. And by rising from the dead on the third day, he secured our justification, proving he has power over sin and death. Like he said in John fourteen six, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's only one way. There's no other Savior. Christ himself is the gospel. His person, his work are, are the heart of this good news. But there's one last piece of the puzzle missing. This is who Jesus is. This is what he did to save us. But this is not quite the end of the gospel message. There's a final piece you must have because although he died to save sinners, that doesn't mean everyone is automatically saved. Now there's a last step where you must access, receive the work he has done on your behalf. And this, this final step is found in the fourth and last category here of the gospel faith. God, man, Christ, faith. And faith is that final step, the last piece to the puzzle. It's the link to make this gift of salvation yours, to receive it. And faith is what you must have if you are to receive everything Jesus did on the cross. And without this, you, you have nothing. His work is finished, but it's not applied to you. You're still dead in your sins and will account for them. The only escape is Christ, and the only door to Christ is faith. Let's clarify here first what faith is not. You need to talk about faith. What, what are we talking about? Well, first, what faith is not. And you, just to clarify, you must not confuse faith with head knowledge, intellectual assent. You can know all about someone without actually knowing someone, i.e. having a relationship with them. You might have a list of facts about your favorite celebrity, but you don't actually know them, and they certainly don't know you. It's not enough to know the facts or the data of the gospel. Salvation only comes by knowing a person, Jesus, as your Lord and Savior. And really, we could, we could ask the other question, uh, does Jesus know you? Or would he say to you, as he says, he'll say to many on the final day, Matthew seven twenty three. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's a bunch of people who are calling Jesus Lord. They paid him lip service, but he says, I never knew you. You likewise might know the facts. Yeah, this, this person named Jesus died on a cross and supposedly rose from the dead. I know these things. I intellectually believe these things. That's not by itself saving faith. That's not enough. People will know that and still be condemned. So what then is the difference? What is saving faith? Secondly, what, what faith is? Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith, of course, begins with knowledge. You have to know the truth. You've got to know the gospel. But it then turns into conviction. Like this, this stuff really is true. Jesus really is the Lord. And then that conviction gives way to trust, where you, you entrust yourself, your life to Christ. He goes from being Lord and Savior to my Lord, my Savior. 
In Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And that, that's not just saying Jesus is Lord. I could pay someone to say that. What, what's taking place here is a transfer of lordship in your heart, in your life. You recall that in your sinful rebellion, you took the throne of God for yourself. You asserted lordship over your own life. But salvation requires the end of that. First, you recognize all that bad news is true. All the sin, the guilt, the shame, the hurt. You've caused a horde of other people, and most of all, God himself. You have maligned his glory. You've invited his wrath. This is what your lordship has gotten you. But then you look and you see Christ, this crucified and risen Savior, who offers you forgiveness of sins and eternal life, perfect righteousness, reconciliation with your God, that offer is only granted, though, you can only receive it when you, you, you forsake self. You must come to the end of your, your rebellion against this God. You, you wave the white flag. You forsake self. You die to self, crucify self, deny self. Just like Jesus said, you have to. Romans eight thirty four. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must, what? First, deny self, take up his cross, and then follow me. Saving faith is where the knowledge of the gospel gets translated into conviction, then trust, and then, then really action, where you confess Jesus as Lord, and, and he actually becomes the Lord, the sovereign over your life. And this is why true saving faith is always paired with repentance. There are two sides of the same coin. As the scales fall from your eyes, you, you realize the good news. You also you see your sin for what it is. You come to see your rebellion against God. You forsake yourself, that, that self that's been in rebellion. That means you're, you're also going to forsake all of your sinful ways. This is what God requires because you, you cannot cling to Christ alone and cling to your sin at the same time. God says in Isaiah 55, 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Pardon is available, but only through a repentant faith in Christ. This is not to say you'll never sin again the rest of your life. Even as Christians, we we still stumble in many ways. But we're talking here, you you realign your life under Christ. You, You happily live under his will and your new heart of hearts you love him. You love his ways, his righteousness. You're happy to be back in God's bounds because they're good. They're for your good. You're no longer fighting against his will. You're not fighting against your flesh. And you just desperately want to be free from sin. The whole direction and purpose of your life has changed. First Corinthians 6.20 says, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Knowing Jesus has redeemed your life from death. That means he now owns your life. He's your new master. But beholding his glory, you got no problem with that. You'd have that no other way. You're happy to offer up up your whole life now on that altar. You become this living and holy sacrifice. Your life is dead. It's gone. Its only purpose now is found in his kingdom, his glory, his purposes. In that though, you find your greatest fulfillment. This is the heart of true saving faith, which is the only means of being justified or made right with God. All of our sin has made us wrong with God, cut off, separated. A vast chasm opened up between us and God, like this infinite Grand Canyon you could never, ever cross, not possible. Hopeless. But God in his grace made a way. He created this bridge. There's only one. It's extremely narrow. So there's only a few who find it. It has a narrow gate as well. But Christ Jesus is this bridge. The door to it is by faith. It's the only way to be reconciled to God. God has made this way. We must enter by faith. As Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. So we find in the end that this, this salvation, no one, no one earns it. Certainly no one deserves it. 
Anyone who has it found it as a gift of God's grace. And this is a big part of what makes this good news good news. That, that God made a way. If he didn't, there would be no way. But he's made a way, one and only way, to be reconciled to himself forever and enjoy him. And it's, it's faith alone in his son Christ alone. What you've heard this morning is, is the core of the gospel message. And every time you hear this message, it draws a line in the sand. There's just two responses now. Either accept it or you reject it. There's no riding the fence. That is rejection. You've been confronted with the truth claims of Scripture. And so the question is, that, what are you going to do now? Today is the day of salvation. You can't wait till tomorrow. You're not guaranteed a tomorrow. You just might wake up to judgment. You must repent and call upon the name of this Jesus today to be saved. And I want you to know, everyone lives by faith. This is not a choice between faith and not faith, or like faith and and science, as some put it today. No, you tell me, what person knows what happens to the soul after death? Who has empirical data on that? Who has seen that firsthand or experienced that firsthand? No one. Everyone chooses to believe something about what happens after you die. Some choose to believe nothing happens after you die. That belief requires faith. I would argue it takes a lot more faith and a blind faith. We too are going to live by faith, but it's not a blind faith. Its eyes are wide open. It's informed by the more sure word of God. The scriptures come to us as the timeless testimony of God to men showing you the way. You know, this Bible, we have 66 books written by 40 plus authors over 1500 years, three continents, three languages. But it it contains a single, clear, consistent God and gospel. And I can only pray that God's spirit convicts your hearts this morning and, and opens your eyes to see that the savior of this scripture is truly the only way, truth, and life. That you'd place your faith in him, become his disciple, and then just get to spend the rest of your life learning to observe all that he commanded for his glory. And this all applies to, to maybe some of you here, you've been in the church your whole lives, but you've never been born again. You've never actually been converted, for you've never either understood the gospel or actually yielded up your heart, your life, your, your lordship to Christ as Lord. But you too can do so today. And for those of us who have, though, what a reminder. For those who know Christ as their Lord here, why are you here? I mean that in all senses. Why are you here at this church this morning? Why are you here on this planet living these lives? Like, why do you exist? The Lord Jesus has restored our created purpose, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And in reconciliation to God, we can now gain and find what our soul longs for. That peace which surpasses understanding, a joy that's irrespective of circumstances, all to God's glory. In addition, one way we glorify this God is by serving others. That involves edifying fellow believers, pointing them to Christ that their faith might be built up. Their conduct might match their calling. And part of this service to God involves evangelizing the lost. In mercy, extending mercy to those who who don't know the way, the truth, the life. Showing them the way that they too might find peace with God. We're not the Lord. We're not in control of such things. But you can be found faithful as you now give your life more and more over to this Lord and his will. That's why you're here. So my hope is that for each of you, it's true as it was for Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 23, where he says he, he, did all, he does all things for the sake of the gospel. He does all things for the sake of the gospel. It's all that, that really matters. And this message is not relegated to the beginning of the Christian life. And that's it. Let's move on to better things. This, this truth is our daily bread. Empowering us to deny the flesh, walk by the Spirit, put on Christ, and live for him. And so I hope you resolve this morning to be devoted to this gospel and all that goes with it. In the New Testament alone, we're commanded to 
believe the gospel, to teach the gospel, to preach the gospel, to share the gospel, to suffer for the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to not be ashamed of the gospel, to not distort the gospel, to obey the gospel, to serve the gospel, to defend the gospel, to confirm the gospel, to advance the gospel, and to be worthy of the gospel. And so my prayer for you all is that you likewise would be found worthy of this gospel. That involves you growing ever deeper in your knowledge of it and your trust in it. Don't forget this message. Cherish it, study it, know it, live it, and with, uh, share it with others. Four, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray together. Our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the giver of this gospel, we, we do pause and want to give you thanks this morning together as a local church body. I, I pray, lifting up one heart, just in thanksgiving to you for the way and for the truth, the life that's found in Christ. We see the, the bridge, the only way, and just rejoice when we find it. And we thank you. We know it's only by your grace. You've, you've opened our eyes. You've enabled us to see and believe that we're not better than anyone else. We are simply recipients of your amazing and unending grace. Thank you for sending your son Christ into this world to die for unworthy sinners, yet by his power to rise again, that, that we might be offered this, this gift of eternal life. And, and what that life holds, what mysteries it holds, but we know all that matters is we will be with our Savior, with our God, face to face. Thank you for this good news. May it lift our souls. May we not forget it. For those here who, who don't know it or who don't have it in their hearts, uh, I pray even right now, today, you'd convict them by your spirit. It's a work your spirit must do. But we do pray and plead that you send that spirit forth to, to convict so, uh, hearts and souls like you did mine 20 years ago and for many of us here. You'd uh, bring many to true faith in your son to, to be used now for you. We still have much to do until the Lord returns and his kingdom comes. But in obedience to this gospel and to our Lord, may we seek first his kingdom his righteousness, and build us up in this faith and in this gospel. Help us not to fail it or forsake it, to not be ashamed of it in a world that hates it once again, but to defend it, to share it, and to live it out. And be with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.